Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, we have an absolutely stellar principal account executive over at Dialpad. Her name's Marissa. Nick, why should people listen? I particularly liked this episode because the second half of the conversation, we talked a lot about team selling with a sales engineer. And most of my career was spent working with a sales engineer. That person will make or break your ability to hit quota. If you can get your sales engineer to be an asset for you as opposed to a liability, you're going to kill it. Marissa will teach you how. Three, two, one. This episode will also be an asset for you. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Your Zoom Info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how Zoom Info helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by Zoom Info's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto-reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press Command-H, and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox if I don't get a reply in two days. That means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two-day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time every time, you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes. All right, Marissa, welcome to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. 
Okay. The first one is prioritizing your pipeline. I know so many reps that are just focused on all the wrong things. So your time's super valuable. A couple of factors that I take into consideration are first, the deal size. Obviously, the larger the ACV, the more time you should focus on that deal. Second is timing. Are they looking to purchase within the next month or quarter? If so, that needs to be at the top of your priority list. Third is product fit, right? Making sure that the features that they're asking for, the capabilities are in line with what your product offers. And lastly, a strong champion. Can the person that you're working with go in and sell your product internally? So take a look at all those four things. If all four of them are in play, make that deal the top of your priority list. Beautiful. What's number two? Number two is ranking the buyer's priorities after every disco call or discovery slash demo, depending on how you run your sales process. This just makes sure that you are focused on all the right things. This also gives them a chance to edit those priorities if you missed one and get you can get some buy-in, right? So moving forward, when you do a second demo, when you put together pricing, when you loop in some other team members, everyone's on the same page and you're focused on all the things that matter to them. Wonderful. What's tip number three? Okay, so tip number three is just to understand the buying process early. This just puts you in a better position so there's no gotchas later on. So understand their budgeting cycle, their budgeting process, who the decision maker is, who the signer is, because those two might be different. And then also, if they've purchased another software in the past, what were the terms? Is it a longer agreement? Can they do annual payment quarterly? Understanding these things will just eliminate risk later on in the deal. Awesome. So Marissa, talking about the buying process, I've seen this go really poorly where some people first call first five minutes, they're banting someone over the head. And that's probably not how you're doing it. But the other terrible thing to do is not cover this until the 16th call. And so I'm curious, when and how do you go about uncovering the buying process and figuring out if your champion knows how to buy software? So it really just depends on how quickly they're moving and who the buyer is. I've done this on the first call. If it makes sense and they're looking to move by the end of the month, I'm saying, hey, I want to get you the best pricing possible, but I need to understand the terms and who you're taking a look at, right? Because sometimes there's competitors in play. So it's more of like, how can I help you? And then there's other deals that, you know, they're not making a decision for another six months. So I won't bring this up until pricing comes into play, which might be on the third call after I've already done a discovery call, a demonstration, and then we do a scoping slash pricing call where we get everything out on the table. But listen to your gut. If you feel like it's too early to be talking about pricing and it gets kind of awkward, you're probably bringing it up at the wrong time. So a lot of times we're talking to folks who don't have a very clear event, meaning like you need to buy this software by this date, what have you. A good example is we have a lot of friends over at Gong where typically it's not like you need Gong today versus tomorrow, it's just a general pain point. And so how do you go about finding things that you can use to hold people to some sort of timeline as opposed to like an arbitrary, we sort of want to get this thing done at some point? Yeah, you have to really dig into their pain and help quantify. So if there is something, for example, like for our phone system, if they're like an on an on-premise solution, they're paying a lot of money for equipment. And also they have to like go through the vendor to make changes to their call routing treatment or add users that could take anywhere from a week to two weeks. So that's losing time. And within our system, you can make those changes automatically. So you're trying to like actually quantify the pain 
and put that in front of them. So it's more compelling for them to make a change. Obviously, the more pain points you can find, the more compelling you get. One thing that I oftentimes find is helpful is some of the things you mentioned earlier on, Marissa, is every rep should have their stack rank of timeline drivers. And number one on the list is oftentimes current vendor expiring, right? And then the next one might be, I don't know, if there were some period in which telecom companies were all making their purchasing decisions. And then another period might be an audit. And then you start getting to the softer ones, which are maybe you have a batch of new hires or a new product release. And then the final ones are related to pricing and commercial terms. But I find that oftentimes sellers try to throw the discount at the buyers as the first thing when the problem isn't price. The problem is that their buying window isn't even for the next nine months. And so I guess my question for you is, Marissa, let's say we land on one of those timelines, right? Let's say that we land on a six-month timeline. One of the things that you talk a lot about is how you're really good with sales process. How do you chop up the sales cycle over six months to keep them engaged? Or in other words, what are the key steps that you know your buyers need to go through in order to complete a complex purchase? Yeah, and that's why I said to figure out their buying process early on, because this might include security review or an RFP or an RFI or you know going through the BAA or MSA. So I build all of that into a mutual action plan. And I actually walk through it with the buyer and I say, hey, how long does your legal process typically take? They're like we say two weeks, but it actually ends up being a month. I'm going to sit and I say, okay, well, let's allocate four weeks for that. Who's in charge of that? Great. So I actually like walk them through step-by-step what the ideal buying process will be. Let's do a demonstration. Sometimes I need to do a POC that can take anywhere from two weeks to a month. So I start to lay out all the different steps. And a lot of the times it takes up four to six months and it perfectly aligns with the timeline that we've agreed upon. And so I'm curious, you talk about digging into the buying process early on. And then from there, you're essentially mapping out all of these steps. How are you keeping track of all of these steps? Are you using a JEP? Are you using a map? And I guess, how are you keeping this long sales cycle on track so it doesn't wander for six months? Yeah. So a lot of the times, like on most calls, I'll have a deck of the agenda. I'll have some slides if we're going through specific features or like POC success criteria. And at the end, I'll include my mutual action plan. Here's where we are in our mutual action plan, here are the steps that we still need to complete. After the call takes place, I'll even do a recap email. Here's what we covered on today's call. Here's what we still need to cover. Another thing is I sell primarily with partners. I keep the partner on the same page as well. Here's what we've accomplished. Here are the last three things that we need to do. For the last three things that we need to do, there's been times where we're doing an MSA red lines and I'm like, currently in review, we'll have back to you by end of week. So just like over communicate, just so everyone's on the same page. You don't want anyone to say, oh, I just didn't know what was going on. So we didn't do anything for the last two weeks and we just wasted all that time. Can you talk to me about the experience of selling alongside partners? Because I've worked in sales where like a consultant will be helping the company make the purchasing decision, or there's an implementer that they've worked with before that also implements our thing. And so they're sort of helping with the sale or there's a channel partner. Can you talk me through sort of two things? One, areas that people commonly screw up in working with partners, and then maybe the inverse of that, what I should be doing instead. Yeah. So I think the first thing is every partner is different. They have different preferences. 
So sync with the partner before you ever meet with the client. And I just say, hey, how do you want to run this deal? And sometimes the partners say, do not communicate with the client. You need to go through me for everything, scheduling, relaying back information, relaying pricing. So just understand how they want to work off the bat. So I think understanding preferences first, include them on every single email thread, make sure they're included on all the invites as well, and then talk about pricing before you deliver it. Because there's been times where like partners commission is tied to the pricing as well. So if you go in and discount or offer terms that they probably wouldn't have agreed upon, run that by them first. And there's been times where I, I had to give like a free month or do a shorter contract length where it affects their commission, but they were just happy that I respected them and went to them first and asked for permission before I did that. So again, over communicate with your partners. Marissa, you made two interesting points there that I found have worked for me is one, figure out what is important to the partner. You said figure out their preferences. We often sit down with our buyer and we say, what does great look like? Like, what does success look like for your project or initiative and replacing your telecom stuff? But if you actually think about it, if you have a partner that already has a relationship with the client, like you also want to figure out, okay, you're bringing me in partner, what does great look like for you here? Like, how do you want me talking about you or presenting my thing? And they will often tell you, hey, this is what great looks like for me bringing you into this relationship. And oftentimes when a partner brings you in, if you can make the partner happy, you're going to be good because they can sell internally for you. So don't forget, you have to figure out what is important to them. The other thing you talked about was like the pricing thing. And I want to talk to you in a second about like how you actually deliver pricing because I know you have some good stuff. But something I found is oftentimes partners think they know what your pricing looks like because they've been in the industry for a long time and they miscommunicate that to the client. They're like, oh, they're super cheap or here's their model. And like that stuff changes. And so you're right. It's important that you have a candid conversation with them around like, Here's how we're structured. Yeah. So if I'm sending over a quote to the client, I'll set up time with the partner, like 15 minutes. And I'll say, here's the quote. And I'll go line item by line item because we have different license types, right? And different, we have toll-free numbers, room lines, professional services. I have to explain why they're paying that amount for our implementation team to come in and help them. Also, there's like special terms because there's usage involved. So I, I will go in and review it with the partner and I'll send it to them and I'll recap kind of like the main bullet points, because I don't want them to deliver pricing wrong if they've asked that they want to deliver pricing to the customer. That's more of like a consultant partner. One other partner I'll talk about is like a technology partner. I worked with Google at my last company and I co-sold with them. And it was more of like a marketing attribution, like Google ads measurement. So we actually met every week We had a call to measure the results of the POC that we were running side by side. And it was just us, myself and Google. So that every time we met with the customer, we were on the same page with the metrics that we were tracking and the lift that we were providing them. So different partners require different ways that you interact with them. But I do, if it is a large deal, which this was, meet with a partner on like a a weekly or biweekly basis. So Marissa, I'm curious, independent of a partner, you've mentioned a couple times that you're going to try to almost like test your prospect by giving price early. Can you give me a sense of like how you go about doing that and why? Yeah. So the question everyone gets on like every disco or demo is I need pricing. Okay. Don't send pricing blindly and say, sure, great. I'll send you an email with the pricing details and uh, let me know if you have any questions. That's the worst thing to do. 
say, hey, actually pricing, because for us, it's on our website. Pricing's on our website. Here's what it typically costs for a contact center seat or one of our back office users. Gauge their reaction. They might say, oh, wow, you're way more expensive than this competitor. Or, oh, we're only spending this much. That's where I pivot and I say, hey, that's just our list pricing. Depending on how quickly you can move forward, payment terms, other concessions, like I can definitely work with my finance team to get pricing in a better spot for you. But if you don't test them and gauge their reaction, you're going to come in blind and probably get ruled out right away just because you were ignorant and didn't know what was going on. I will ask them too and just be super blunt. What are you currently paying for your current provider? If during the demo, they noted that they don't have X, Y, and Z with that current provider, that's an option for you to come in at a higher rate because they're getting more value. So I think it never hurts to ask. Ask what they're currently spending. Ask what they've budgeted. Ask what the other competitors have come in at. I've even asked for competitor quotes and they've sent them to me. And then I send them to finance and say, hey, this is what this competitor came in at. Can we match or can we come close? You know, one area I've struggled with this, and I want to hear how you voice this over, is the same situation where I'm talking to a customer about their system that they bought in 1993, and there's 42 different things that like don't work with it that they articulated in our discovery call. And then they anchor me on the fact that they pay 20% of what my quote is. And what I don't want to do is say to the customer, well, you're an idiot. Your thing sucks. And like, that's why you're paying less. So like, how do I artfully call out to the customer? Hey, the reason that you're paying less is that your thing ain't that good. Yeah, I've dealt with that same kind of situation. And I will even just say like, hey, a lot has changed since the 1990s. And like, our solution is a lot more modern. Here are all the additional features and functionality you're going to get with our system. I understand that you don't want to pay 5x as much, but can we meet in the middle where you're still paying more, but you can get this approved by your finance team? You have to do it that way, but also understand which vendors they're looking at. Because for us, we're a cloud-based phone system, but there's also on-premise systems. So if he's looking at an on-premise system and looking at us, it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, and our pricing models are just like completely different. So I will also try to understand like the competitive landscape so that they are making side-by-side comparisons from a cost perspective. It's funny because this happens in almost every single new software company. If you work for a startup or a growth stage company, is there are almost always these legacy players in your space. These players who have been around since like MS-DOS and Windows 95. And a good example is at PAVE, one of the key things that differentiates us is we essentially integrate with all of your HR systems so you don't have to do the work of uploading data into PAVE, right? But a lot of the legacy players don't do that and they're 20% of our price. Literally like a fraction. And one thing that I find is really, really helpful is instead of trying to convince someone off the bat, I'll actually try to push them to that model and be like, the folks who want to pay 20K versus 80 to 100K are the folks who are okay doing that work and they're not really concerned about manager experience. And that might be you, right? Because you want to take money out of that model and you have a big enough team to do all that on your own. Are you comfortable doing that on your own? And then put it on them to get them to push back 
and say, no, there's a reason that we're talking. And then, Marissa, to your point, you then start to quantify, okay, well, then how much is that worth to you above that 20K? Marissa, one of the things that you put in the prep doc that I'm curious around your intention behind is when you give any sort of concession, you are attaching a valid through or valid expiration date on that thing. Can you explain to me the strategy behind that and then two, how you are pointing that out to the customer or calling their attention to it? So let's just say you've negotiated a deal. You gave them a special term that you usually don't give. Maybe you'd made some adjustments to the SLA. You got them really awesome pricing. Hey, this is only approved for this quarter. This pricing is no longer valid after July 31st. So when I send over the pricing proposal or the quote, I'll say the pricing's valid through July 31st, 2022. That way they know that they're going to lose that pricing if they don't move forward by the date that we agreed upon. And there's been times where my prospects are like, shoot, like we need to rush to get this done or else I'm going to lose this great pricing. I just blame it on finance. That's just the way that our company functions. Every quarter we have to go back and seek approvals. And I just got a new CFO. I don't think this pricing is going to get approved next quarter. And when I present the pricing, I like bold it and put it like right in front of them so that there's no confusion and they're aware that the pricing will no longer be there by that time. I mean, what you're doing takes, it takes like just this tiny amount of discipline where I always feel like the deals that I don't need this for are the ones where they end up biting me or I'm like, oh, I wish I had put that because you're right. If you say, hey, this is valid through July 4th and then something happens, the deal blows up and you're past then, you can always go back if you feel like, okay, you do need to honor that earlier discount in order to like get the deal done. Otherwise, it's going to not happen. You have that option. But if you don't set an expiration date, now you're backpedaling. So you actually have absolutely nothing to lose by just making it a standard practice. Anytime you make any sort of concession, put a expiration date on it because now you are the one who is in control. Especially for deals that don't have a critical event, like a renewal day or contract expiration date, there's just a compelling event. If they think they're going to get that pricing indefinitely, they're just going to keep pushing. And your forecast calls are going to be really embarrassing because you're committing a deal that has no urgency. I had a deal recently where I had pricing valid through the end of the month. And then there were some changes in the org, right? There were layoffs. So she went back to me and she said, I'm so sorry. I promised you I'd sign by this day. But we just laid off 20% of our workforce and our management team said it, there's a freeze for the next week. And I said, hey, thanks for letting me know. I'll get a, an extension to have this pricing approved for another two weeks. Does that give you enough time? She goes, yes. She signed it two weeks later. It pushed, but at least she knew where she stood and she knew that I was going to have to go back to my team to get approval. So what do you do when it pushes out and they miss their deadline, but then they want the same price? If there's a valid reason, I'll honor the pricing, but if it's just because they like want to drag their feet, I think you need to be disciplined and say, hey, if this goes past this date, we need to go back to like $65 a seat versus the 60 that you have now. One of the things that I find is really, really helpful is if you can handle this conversation up front, as opposed to after the fact, 
it is key because you talked about understanding the buying process early. And I find that the best sellers will, before giving the discount and asking for an end of month commitment, they unpack all the steps that need to happen. Is security going to be done? Is legal going to be done? Is this going to be done? Is that going to be done? On that basis, you have all control to get this done by end of this month, end of this quarter. Agreed? Agreed? Yes. Awesome. That's a mutual agreement. If we don't, I'm looking you eye to eye right now. You need to know that there's no way that I'm going to be able to keep this and my finance team is going to hold me to it. But a lot of people, they just give the discount and they're like, oh, please sign up by the end of the month. And they'll be like, yes. the buyer says something like, crossing my I fingers. think I'm going to get it done. It should be okay. And then when they push, they're like, oh no, you lose your discount. And that's how you lose the deal entirely and never get it back again because people are pissed off at you. Yeah. And another thing I do is like, I'll loop my manager or director onto some of these pricing and negotiation calls. Good cop, bad cop, have them deliver that, right? So that I remain the good cop and say, hey, it's totally out of my control. This is my director. It's coming from the top. It's probably one of my favorite things to do is my reps love blaming things on me for better or for worse. And so I'm like perpetually the bad guy. And the other thing is they tend to do a really good job. Folks oftentimes are like matching power with power. I'm curious, are there other things that you're doing from a team selling standpoint that are worth noting throughout your buying process, whether that means when you get access to power or whether you're going through technical validation or you're going through a negotiation, when are you pulling in key members of your team into your sales cycle? Yeah. So my sales engineer, right, is with me a lot of the time for demonstrations. I always say at the beginning of the call, like he is your technical resource. Like that's his lane, especially when it comes to scoping. I'll loop in sometimes my like director of professional services, because his team's ultimately going to be the one implementing the team. For some legal calls, depending on how many red lines there are, I might loop in our legal counsel and just set up a call so that we're not going back and forth via email. Typically, a call can resolve most of the outstanding items within like an hour versus like wasting two weeks on it. And then my director and manager, I'll loop in for those negotiation calls and sometimes earlier on, if they bring in like their CIO or like a CEO on some of the later demos, but definitely aligning power is good. So there's executive sponsorship. Can you talk to me a little bit about the prep for your sales engineer? Because in the jobs I've worked where I've had a sales engineer, I found that that person makes or breaks the sale. And it's usually within my control as to what side of the line they end up falling on. Yeah. So I'm a firm believer that my sales engineer and I are a team. But before every single call, I will set up like 15 to 20 minutes with him and go through what we're going to cover on that call, the agenda. He might make tweaks and say, eh, let's not cover that on this call. We only have an hour. We can't get to it. We're going to run out of time. I said, okay, great. After this discovery call, sometimes I have questions. I'm like, hey, like, how does this integration work? Or how does this use case work? Let's flush that out on a call between us so that when we go to the customer, we're not still confused. He might say, hey, can we get these three questions answered? Be like, great, let's do that. I go through an executive summary slide, which is recapping their current state, their challenges, and their goals. So I'll review that with the sales engineer. Also go through like, who's going to be on the call and what's their personality like? I have some folks that are just like really serious evaluators. So I'll let the sales engineer know they're not going to laugh at your jokes. They're very serious. They're going to ask like really pointed questions and cut you off. Just give them a heads up. Last but not least, tell the sales engineer what you want the outcome to be. 
I want to get buy-in and I want to move to a POC. At the end of the call, that's our goal. We're going to schedule a POC kickoff call. Make sure all of that's flushed out beforehand so that the call goes as smoothly as possible and that you continue to work towards the end goal. Can you talk about that tag team motion in the meeting with your SE? And the reason that I uh, I ask is I see a lot of folks pass it to their SE and then crack open a beer, put their feet up on the desk, and then maybe they even go off camera on Zoom and they start answering other slacks and emails. But there's probably a better way to do this and be more actively involved in the conversation to support your SE. Yeah, so there is a handoff, right? You go through your slide deck, you you know, the AE hands it over to the SE. They say, hey, can you see my screen? Stay engaged. During the demonstration, I will catch things that he might not since he's like, handling so many different things or showing integrations. So they're like, hey, Alton, actually, I think what they meant is this. And he's like, oh, thank you so much for clarifying. Yes, let me show you what that looks like within our call reporting. There's other times where he just answers questions and I, I'll go clarify. Hey, actually, when you ask this question, what's like the context behind it? Like, are you asking it because you can't do that within your current system? Or like, where is this coming from? Just like start to help him out by like, figuring out more details or getting some clarification. And sales engineers are really smart, but they have five people asking them questions sometimes and they might miss something. So steer them. And there's been times where like he actually jumps to something that's not super important to them. And I'll cut him off and say, hey, actually, I think what they want to see is like the reporting suite. And we can schedule like another time to go through the back end because like the IT manager's on the call. But I think you should stay engaged. Don't go off camera. I think staying on camera like forces you to stay engaged. Definitely don't eat or crack open something to drink because then you can't talk even if you want to go off mute. Yeah, you have a couple of jobs when your sales engineer is demoing. Your first job is, to your point, to keep the call on track. And the reason you are well-equipped to do that is because you're not demoing software and you know what they actually care about. So if people try to derail, you have the ability to be like, hey, this isn't actually related to the goal that you're hoping to accomplish. The second thing you also need to do is you need to bring back what you learned in discovery into the call because your sales engineer doesn't have that context. So use the fact that someone else is running the demo for you to insert stories. And then the last piece is to your point is, Marissa, you should be eyeballing that room like crazy. I actually love to blow up my Zoom gallery room while my SE is demoing and look at the people that I need to be engaged. And the moment you see someone multitasking or on Slack, pinpoint them and prick them with questions exactly to get them re-engaged in the conversation. Another thing is when you have multiple people on a demo, I'll say, hey, you're running the demo. I'm going to monitor the chat because there's questions coming through the chat. They're asking for documentation, more information about integrations. Also, like I have Slack up during demos. So I'll ping them and be like, hey, let's actually maneuver to this because that's more important to them so that you're not actually having to like on the call, call them out in front of everyone. Or I have his personal cell phone number, so I'll text him. But those are just good methods to like behind the scenes, make sure that you're all on the same page and focus on the right things in the demo. Marissa, that was probably the best riff that we've had on team selling with a sales engineer probably ever on the show. So thank you. We are running out of time, however, and we've got to move ourselves to the very last question. And the last question is this. We've talked about a lot of great things salespeople should be doing. Now let's talk about the inverse. So the last question is, what is one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibit that you think they need to break because it is hurting them more than it helps? Yes. 
I think when salespeople take a long time responding to emails, when you're making a prospect wait like a few hours, a day, they might take their business elsewhere. Just respond to them. They'll appreciate that so much more. And there's been times where I respond and say, hey, I read your email. I don't know the answer, but I'm finding the answer. I'll let you know as soon as I get it. And they're like, thank you so much for being professional. I think a lot of the times sales folks are mistaken and they think they have to have all the answers right away before they respond. Just make sure that you're staying on top of it and make them feel special. Because a lot of the, the sales process and the buying process is like, do they like the sales rep and do they like their sales experience with that company? Beautiful. Marissa, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Marissa from Dialpad include number one, at the end of that first discovery call, stack rank their top priorities and share them back with the prospect so you can spend 90% of your time there. Number two, give pricing early in your sales cycle and watch their reactions when you do it. And if you ever decide to give a concession, make sure there's an expiration date on it. Number three, don't eat a sandwich while your SE is demoing. It's on you to prep them, and then once the call starts, it's on you to keep the call on track. And then lastly, number four, my personal favorite way to do that is blow up the Zoom gallery view and constantly be watching all of the people on the call, and if someone starts multitasking, engage them with a question. Those are the four, Nick. How could people help us out here? Well, in previous How Can People Help Us Out episodes, I've asked folks to follow Nick and Armand on LinkedIn, but did you know we've got another asset on LinkedIn? It's our 30 Minutes to President's Club company page, and why you might consider following that page is what we do is we take the very best stuff from Armand and the very best stuff from Nick, and we actually put it out on that page. So if you want to get the best of Armand, the best of Nick, and the occasional sales tip, you might consider following 30 Minutes to President's Club on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week on the show.
Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes.